Okay, so our task this morning is to continue this um, um, study on Christian confession. And as I said before, uh, it's based on 1 John 1, 9, in which, by review, <clears throat> we understand that to confess our sins, for example, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've determined so far that that is not prescriptive as much as it is descriptive of the apostolic faith. In other words, a person who's responded to their apostolic proclamation of the word of life and consequently, and of the true incarnation, by the way, and has, as a result, come into fellowship, a permanent, unbreakable, unconditional fellowship with the Father and the Son, so that the believer is never not in fellowship with the Father and the Son. We may, may not feel like we are. Circumstances may appear to present that, that says that we are not, but that's okay because... It's not based on our feelings. <clears throat> it's not grounded in circumstances. It's grounded in the finished work of Christ, the incarnate one. And so we have this fellowship. And as a result of that fellowship, there are certain characteristics that are indicative of those who are on genuine fellowship with the Father and the Son through the apostolic proclamation. And John, in verses 6 through 10, then, sets forth um, that which is indicative of those who are not in that fellowship and those who are. For instance, in verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. He's not speaking of believers there. He's speaking of the heretics. He's speaking of the Gnostics, those who deny the humanity of Jesus because in their teaching, in their scheme, all things that are material are evil and everything spiritual is good. It's a very naive uh, perspective of the spiritual realm. Um, so because Jesus is proclaimed by the apostles. Naive or is it shallow? Well, it's shallow and naive because to think that the, anything spiritual is somehow inherently good denies the demonic. Which is also spiritual. <laughs> which is also spiritual and which is a very inherent thing to do. Indicative of the demonic is to deny it. <laughs> the, the devil does never want us to confess his existence. He wants to be worshipped as God, not as the devil. So for us to deny the devil is playing right into the devil's scheme. That's how cunning he is. Mm -hmm. And so for us to say everything's spiritual, and this is what's wrong with the New Age movement, this is what's wrong with so much of 12-step uh, spirituality, well, I'm spiritual, not religious. Well, what does that mean to you? Just because something's spiritual doesn't mean it's benevolent. I mean, the spirit realm is filled with the demonic, and so that's anything but good. Mm -hmm. 
So the Gnostics had this twisted view of dualism. They had this unbiblical dualism. Everything material is evil, and everything spiritual is good. And because the, the apostles proclaimed Jesus as being fully human, and yet fully God, undiminished deity, and unblemished humanity, they rejected the apostolic proclamation. said, no, Jesus only appeared or seemed to be human. He was just like a hologram. He just appeared to be. He couldn't actually be human because then he'd be material, and they've determined that everything material is all bad. And so one part of their teaching was that the divine Christ um, took over the human Christ at baptism and then before the crucifixion left him. So it was, it, it was there was these, this dualistic view that there was the human Christ and then there was the divine Christ. Right. And the two didn't stick around with each other. The divine Christ used the human Christ during the ministry and then left before the crucifixion because clearly a spirit can't die. You can't kill God. Can't kill God, God, right. So they really thought, and by the way, the heretics really thought, that the Gnostics really believed that this was a new and special insight imparted to them by the Holy Spirit. They really believed that they were being led by the Spirit and developing this teaching. Mm-hmm. Just like those in the new apostolic reformation today, this hyper-Pentecostal movement, really believe that the prophecies and the words of their apostles and their prophets within that movement is a, um, a new word from God. And that the Bible is the old word and that which comes through their apostles and their prophets are, like Bill Johnson down in Reading, um, are, is the new word. And so this is nothing new. The, the early prototype of Gnosticism here, uh, which they didn't call it Gnosticism, they called it Christianity. That's what made it most insidious. And it arose from within the Christian community. And then some of them decided they were too spiritual to associate with the Christian community, so they departed. They left, but they left theologically, and then they left physically, but now they've come back in and they've wormed their way into the Christian community, um, and they're beginning to set themselves up then in their teachings as the normative Christian proclamation Mm -hmm. and rejecting the apostles. Very egocentric, um, lordly kind of guys. There was an an inherent, and this is very important, there was in this heresy an inherent hierarchy of ascended spiritual leaders. Those who had were among the initiated, the initiates, because you they pursued a secret knowledge, Mm -hmm. secret. Revelation. Is that a term they actually used? Was the initiates? Yes, okay. the initiates. And so it's very Greek philosophy. And so, and we, for instance, we can see that in 
I think it's in Second John. There was this man named um, Diotrephes. No, it's actually Third John. I'm sorry. In Third John, verse nine, it says, "I wrote something to the church." This is the apostle speaking now. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first or preeminent among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does. You know, we should know them by their fruits. Mm-hmm. Unjustly disparaging us with wicked words. Mm-hmm. So Diotrephes had set himself up within the Christian community community as being some kind of an ascended leader that people needed to listen to and people needed to follow to at the expense of rejecting the apostles. (laughs) And not satisfied with this, he himself does not welcome the brothers either. And he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. So this is what happens as early as the time of the apostolic um, uh, ministry, apostolic mission, while John was still writing, that there were men already who were setting themselves up as elevated within the community and then assumed to themselves the ability, and note this now, to excommunicate people from the church if they did not subscribe to them as being the sole dispensers of the truth. Including the apostles. And they, yeah, they excluded John, and then they excluded uh, other brother apostolic brothers, and so. But these guys came along and said, "No, we're the ascended ones. We've got the secret knowledge. We have the special insight, and so, and and you have to follow our hierarchy." So Diotrephes sets himself to be first. He loves to be first among them. Mm-hmm. So wherever you have this clerical hierarchy or this elevated clergy, whether it's a senior pastor within the Baptist church or the Pope himself within the Catholic church and everything in between, you have a form of latent Gnosticism. Not apostolic Christianity. So back to 1 John. 1 John 6 then, so when he says... If we say we have this permanent, unbreakable, unconditional fellowship with him, with God in Christ, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. So he's describing the characteristics. He's looking at this one community. He's writing to one community, but he's calling them out. He's saying there are sheep and there are goats. Well, he's also using them as an example. They yes. Are, they, they are certainly um, behaving this way, but they are not unique. No, he's, he, they're just one form they're of heresy. An example. They're just an example. But he's saying this is, this. so both of these people are present as this letter is being read, mm-hmm. most likely. Mm. And so they're standing shoulder to shoulder in the Christian community, with the true believers. Mm -hmm. And the true believers are under pressure to accept these people Mm -hmm. as genuine Christians. 
So is the difference between 1 John and 3 John. He's talking to everybody now, and by 3 John, Diotrephes has done his dirty deeds. Yeah, by the time... Yeah, so John writes his first letter, pointing these guys out, but by 3 John, these guys, his, his letter did not clean the decks, no. did not clear the decks. In it, fact... It cleared the decks of him. Yeah. Of John. Uh, yeah. So the, so the heretics are now getting more and more um, power in the church to the point that when John writes a letter to the church, they say Diotrephes intercepts it and says, you don't want to read this. Hmm. You just need to listen to me. Kind of like scripture and tradition. Mm-hmm. Ultimately becomes tradition. Tradition. And so scripture gets eliminated. Anytime you add and scripture and tradition, Jesus and whatever, you're, you're eliminating the first thing. And it just becomes tradition. It just becomes the Pope. It just becomes the pastor. And Diotrephes is a good example of how men who stepped in and usurped the role of Jesus as head of the church. The Pope did that in church history. Um, the uh, Henry VIII did that in England, declared himself the head of the church in England. And so anytime you have this elevated clergy that sees themselves in preeminent position over the congregation, and I don't care, again, if it's, it's the Pope himself or some guy who really thinks that he's the senior executive pastor. <laughs> and nothing good comes out of it. Never, never does anything good come out of an elevated clergy. Mm-hmm. You read the Julie Roy's and her Roy's report, daily she's, she's exposing these mega churches who have these celebrity pastors who are in charge, who are the singular focus of that church. So-and-so's church, quote-unquote, and his executive staff. And so you have this little pope and these little cardinals all within this evangelical megachurch. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and, and inv- invariably, she's, she's exposing and reporting on abuse, financial misconduct, sexual impropriety, and scandal. Right. Because that's, that's the only place she can take you. It's the only where, when you're acting out in the flesh, you're going to end up with the works of the flesh. That's what you get. So this is quite profound. Um, and then, and so we're, so John is saying there's a real battle going here. In fact, in Second John verse 10, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, meaning the apostolic teaching from the 12, do not receive him into your house and do not give him even a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Mm. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. Why? It's being intercepted. They're, they're, not, they're, they're, they're saying, don't read this stuff. Right. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So there's the controversy. And so... Verses 5 through 10 in chapter 1 
John is not prescribing. First John 1 John 1.9 is not a prescription. If you sin, you have to confess your sin, and then God will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well, it's not a standalone message. It's not a standalone message. Mm-hmm. It, what John is saying, that there I'm speaking to you as a congregation, among whom have come these false teachers, these false prophets, who say they have a special insight now from the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. that is above and beyond what the apostles are teaching, and that you should follow them as the true apostles and not the those whom Jesus chose. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and then we think about apostolic succession. I mean, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, um, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church all have apostolic succession. They all think that the latest leader of that communion, or the bishop himself, is an heir, direct line heir to the apostles. Mm-hmm. Nothing be, could be further from the truth. It's a lie from the pits of hell. So, <clears throat> here we are. John is writing to this congregation. And he's saying, I'm going to do some separating. I'm going to do some weeding here. There's a, you're a nice garden, but you've got weeds amongst you. You've got tares that have been sowed among you. Mm-hmm. So, in verses 6, 8, and 10, he's describing these tares, these weeds. And verses 7 and 9, he's describing the garden, Christ's garden. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that cleanse, as we discovered, is in the perfect tense. Continually cleansing. Mm -hmm. To confess our sins has nothing to do with being morbidly introspective. Mm -hmm. To be scouring our psyche for the latest known sin. Nor does it have anything to do to be running back and forth to the confessional hoping we don't get too morally filthy in in between times. Mm -hmm. Because 1 John 9, to confess there is to simply bring our mind what we think and what we say about sin including our own sins, in agreement with God. So if we confess our sins, if we agree with God about the nature and reality of sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, who is he speaking to there? To true believers. He's saying, this is what's indicative of a true believer. On the other hand, you, false prophets, who have set yourself up amongst the congregation, are standing right next to a true believer, even as I write this, read this letter, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So there's two people there. Now, that said, that's the battle around sin. But there's another, a second, and as important, equally important, uh, confession. And that is what we find in 1 John 4. And here, John is is striking to the heart of the matter. Because remember, the heretics said that we uh, are being led by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. By the Holy Spirit. This teaching is of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so Paul says, uh, John, excuse me, John says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. 
Just because it's from the Spirit doesn't mean the Spirit realm means it doesn't mean it's of the Holy Spirit. Just because they claim it's from the Spirit realm. Right, yeah, right. You know that. Yeah. And what is, just give you a contemporary example, the, um, what was the name of that series? Uh, a Course in Miracles. Right. Throughout that, those, that, those volumes of those writings by that woman, a Course in Miracles, <clears throat> very popular amongst the New Age group. In the 90s. Right? In the 90s, yeah. yeah. What was her name? Marion Williamson. Marion Williamson made it, read those, turned it into a shtick. And so, but that woman in the Course of Miracles claimed to be led by the Holy Spirit. In fact, she claimed it be that it be it was the Spirit of Jesus who was leading her to write these things. That she was uniquely led and inspired so that every sentence she wrote was a she was as a uh, instrument in the hands of the Spirit of Christ as he was writing these principles of how to live in the course of miracles. Very latent, very real Gnosticism. It was contemporary Gnosticism. The same thing that John's writing against here. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How many? We don't know. But more than one. A lot. A lot. He's using the word many. And that's typical. Many enter the wide gate and follow the broad path to destruction. Many will say to Jesus in that day, but Lord, we did this and we did that and we did this. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's always the many. Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It says in John chapter 2. And so there's always the many. If, you, if you're looking to want to be amongst the crowd, if you want to be part of something simply because it's a big deal, if you want to attend a big church because clearly God is blessing there or it wouldn't be a big church, if you've got to attend this multi-campus level church that has balconies and there's 3,000 people at every service and it's a big Yep, slick, cool place to be. It's the happening place to be. Then be careful because it's always the many who are walking off the cliff. Mm-hmm. It's always the many who are taking the broad path, not the few. Mm-hmm. Okay, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard what is that is coming, and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. And the world hears them. There you go. Yep. How many mega churches? Not every mega church is a bad church. Mm-hmm. Many are. Mm-hmm. 
The many are. The most are. Because they're worldly. John Gerson used to say, when the Lord Jesus returns, will he find faith on, in the world? And he said, no. And to the degree that the church is in the world, he won't find faith there either. <laughs> Good old God, John. Verse 6, we are from God. Who's, who's we? The apostles. The apostolic community and their associates. The one who knows God hears us. The one who is not from God does not hear us. For this we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you have two groups of leaders, the apostles and the heretics, both of whom, now this is very important, both of whom say they are being led by the Spirit to speak and write the things that they do. Both of them have charge um, of congregations mm -hmm. but only one of them is of God both of them say they are from God John is saying we are from God and you can hear the Gnostics in the background going no we are from God so how are we to know well here's a good test he says by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Mm -hmm. So that word confess then, again, is homologeo, meaning to say the same thing that God says about his Son. That's what it means. And if you're saying something about Jesus, you can profess to believe in Jesus, you can wear Jesus bumper stickers on your car, you can wear crosses around your diamond-studded crosses on your, on your neck, you can do all the Christian activities, you can use all the Christian lingo, but if your confession is not in line with what the Father himself says about his Son, if what you say about Jesus is not in line with what the Father says about Jesus, then you're a false prophet. So that's what John's saying here. Mm -hmm. So our task now is to be clear so that we can be assured that we are saying the same thing that God says about his Son. Okay. So where does that begin? How can we say the same thing that God says about his son. Well, it, it isn't difficult. We don't need to become scholars and do studies in Christology for the next six years. All we need to do is listen to what the apostles say about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we don't even have to leave the letter of 1 John to get a good grounding in what God says about his son. And so we won't be able to get into all of that extensively this morning, but we can begin with verse 1 of 1 John. The very first verse. And what she says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
Now, he just described Jesus. Yes. He just described from the Word of God as an inspired apostle, led by the Spirit to write this. And what did he just describe? What would you say that he just described in these first two verses? Let's read it again. What was from the beginning? So that's the first thing. This is not new. This is not a new doctrine I'm writing about. This is not a new teaching. This is what was from the beginning. This is what we've been saying all along. We're not, we're not coming up with a new and better doctrine for those who say we have a new doctrine. Yeah, well, we have a new one too, and it's even better than yours. John's not saying that. He's saying we're going back to the beginning. Right. We're going back to what we've always said, and it has a double application we're going back to the one who was from the beginning. In the beginning, God. Mm-hmm. What was from the beginning? The one we're going to speak now of the one who was with the Father from the beginning. What we have heard, we heard him. Remember, the, the Gnostics said that Jesus only appeared to be human. Right. He only appeared to speak as a human being. But John said, no, 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 we heard him. He talked just like you and I talk. Mm -hmm. What we have seen with our eyes, we saw him. He was no hologram. He wasn't some spook floating around and coming in and out of focus like some kind of hologram that only appeared to be human when it was convenient. And then he went back to being some kind of a a floating around spook in the meantime. Well, I mean, actual proof is what comes next. We yeah. have touched with our hands. Yes. Very good. Good catch. What we beheld and touched with our hands. Mm-hmm. They actually touched Jesus. They actually held him. They might have hugged him. Mm-hmm. John, it says at the Last Supper, leaned his laid his head on Jesus' breast. And he didn't fall through it like you would a hologram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, it was Jesus didn't come in and out of focus like some kind of a hologram. He was actually real. They, in other words, they lived with this man and they saw him doing very real th- human things. He ate, he slept, he laughed, he cried, he expressed emotion. He had normal normal bodily functions. He was tempted in every sense, just as they were, yet without sin. He was fully human. Mm-hmm. Concerning the word of life. That's the first thing that we can say about Jesus, is that he was fully human, and that he is fully God and that he is the word of life. Mm -hmm. And, verse 2, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life. Jesus is the eternal life. Just like he is the way, the truth, and the life, Mm -hmm. John 14, 6. Jesus' eternal life is not some abstract uh, airy-fairy, ethereal thing that we're trying to get so spiritual that we can one day say, I possess 
eternal life. Ooh. No, John's saying, Jesus is eternal life. You want eternal life, you need to connect with Jesus. You need to be in union with him who is in himself eternal life. And then you'll know that you will have eternal life, um, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So Jesus is both fully human. They beheld him. They touched him. And he's also the word who was with the Father in the beginning. In the beginning, the word of life. He's both of those things, or he's nothing. So that's the first thing that we have to understand as Orthodox Christians, that we apostolic Christians, is that that's what Jesus is to us. We say the same thing that God says, and God says he is both fully human and he is the incarnate word of life who was with me from the beginning. He's both of those. And if he's not one of those, he's nothing. Now, why is that important? Then we'll close. <clears throat> why is that important? Because he speaks later of the blood of Jesus. It's in verse 7. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You have to be human to have blood. A ghost, a spook, a hologram doesn't have blood. That's the first thing. And the blood of his son, the human son, the one who was very human to the point where he could bleed. And this is very important because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Means that in his humanity, he stepped in and did what was required of humanity, but that humanity, apart from him, cannot do. Mm -hmm. And that is reconcile themselves with the Father. Mm -hmm. They had no desire to, they had no uh, uh, propensity to, and yet they needed to. And all all the sacrifices of blood, of bulls and goats and animals, no matter how many times a day they did it, could reconcile the irreconcilable. Because what was irreconcilable was not God with man, but man with God. Sin had so gripped human nature that even if we wanted to, if we saw the benefit of being reconciled to God, our very nature was irreconcilable. We ultimately would not reconcile with God. Romans 8, 9 says that, or Romans 8, 7 and 8, I think, says that that the mind set on the flesh cannot please God, nor is it, it's it's hostile towards God. It cannot keep the law of God, nor does it, is it able to. Mm -hmm. We simply could not be reconciled with God because we did not want to be reconciled with God. Regardless of the benefits, regardless of the blessings, regardless of eternal life, we simply would not be reconciled to God in our own mind and strength because we didn't want to be. We chose sin instead. So, there was a sacrifice that was necessary for man to be reconciled to God. And the blood of Jesus, not the blood of 
temple sacrifices is the, the human blood of Jesus reconciled humanity to God. Something had to be so powerful that it would remove the obstacle within hum, human nature um, that kept us alienated from God. It wasn't God. It wasn't anything in God that kept the alienation going. It was what was in man that kept the alienation entrenched. Which is the de desire to be God without God. Right. The desire to be God apart from God. Apart from God. Yeah. You can be God too, but so am I. That's the, we don't have to be... And, and the other part of it was... We don't have to be in relationship with you to enjoy your blessings. Just tell us what we have to do to get your blessings, and then we'll do that. But that doesn't mean we have to be actually in relation to you. Right. We don't have to know you. Right. We don't have to fellowship with you. Right. We just have to do what you tell us to do, and then enjoy your blessings. That was the other manifestation of sin. Mm -hmm. So, But the point I'm making here is that the blood of Jesus is human blood. I hear you. And it was important that something human reconcile the irreconcilable human to God. So Jesus, in his humanity, reconciled humanity to God. Were he not human, there would have never be any reconciliation. Of course, this doesn't matter to a Gnostic because they denied alienation anyway. They denied sin altogether. And New Age contemporary popular spirituality will do the same thing today. It will still say if that we can all know God because we're all God's kids and if we want to be spiritual we can simply choose to be spiritual. We can start incorporating spiritual practices. We can, incorpor we can start meditating. We can start uh, making amends. We can work the 12 steps. We can do things to become spiritual. And we don't have to th even think about sin. We don't have to think about our in innate alienation toward the true God. We can just be spiritual and have God stay vague and meaningless in our life. We can be spiritual without God, if you will. <clears throat> so, um, the bottom line is this. Our task this morning was to determine what God says about his son. Mm. And what we've learned this morning, what he says about his son, is that he's truly man. The incarnation is a true incarnation. Uh, undiminished deity within unblemished humanity. That's Jesus. And he came into the world so that we too would be unblemished. So let me close now with 1 John 3, 1 through 3. I'll just read that. See how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. Now he's speaking there of genuine um, parental Relationship. Familiar, relationship. Familiar relationship, not just sentimental. Mm -hmm. See, John is marveling. See, behold, look 
How great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God after the model and image of Christ. And we are, period. We are children of God. We're never going to be more children of God than we are in this very moment. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to say, for this reason, the world does not know us. Why? Because it did not know him. What the world wants is a Jesus they can know and understand. Let me say that again. And control. Yes. What the world wants is a Jesus they can know and understand and control. A Jesus that is like them. Not a Jesus as the Father decides. Mm -hmm. That was a profound thing I just said. Agreed. Agreed, it was. Because what the world wants is they want a Jesus they can know, they can understand, and they can control. Mm-hmm. And John is saying, the world does not know us because we did, it did not know him. Mm-hmm. The world does not understand us. The world does not know us because it did not understand and know him. Mm-hmm. Nor do they want anything to do with us any more than they want anything to do with him. Right. And so the Southern Baptist Convention for the last 50 years has said, well, clearly the task is to create a Jesus that the world will like. And again, that's another form of latent Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Let's create a, a new image for Jesus. Jesus has an image problem with the public. Right. So let's run an He Gets Us campaign so that the world will say, Oh, gee, I didn't realize he was such a nice guy. He really is just like me, isn't he? He gets us. What unspeakable unspeakable folly. Beloved, because let me tell you, if they were to actually run a campaign like that and say, this is what God says about his son, it would go over like a lead balloon. Why? Because the world does not know us because it did not know him. And they did not know him because they did not want to know him. You don't crucify somebody you want to know. That right? campaign is not about reaching no. unsaved anyway. No, it's so. about collecting data from those who go onto the website and sign up to support it or read from it. You get their contact information, you create a database, and you sell it to churches. Right. That's all it is. <laughs> My goodness. Manipulative. Yeah. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it, is not, it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. So now we are children of God. Two things happening there, right? Now we are children of God, and it is not yet been manifested what we will be. Mm-hmm. So those two things are hold, held in tension. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him just as he is. Yep. Beautiful. And everyone who has this hope, what? Fixed on him. Fixed on him. Not fixed on a Jesus that we can know and understand and control, but fixed on the one that the Father sent into the world, purifies himself just as he is pure. Just as he is pure.
So what does the father say about the son? He says, he is fully human. He's the word of life that was with me from the beginning. And that we are being conformed into his image. And one day when we see him, we will be perfected in that image. And that has not yet been realized. But that doesn't take one iota away from the fact that we are now in him. We are now children of the Father. And with the Son, we have fellowship with him through the Holy Spirit. And in that, our joy is made complete. Amen. Amen. Amen.